Hey everybody, Stuart here, and welcome to the iFormerX podcast. iFormerX is a community of practice where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care, community pharmacy, and geriatric pharmacy practice. If you're already a member of the iFormerX community, that's awesome. We, we don't have an advertising budget, so we rely on word of mouth to spread the word about iFormerX. So if you find our content helpful, tell your colleagues to join iFormerX today. And if you're listening to this podcast for the first time and are not already a member, just head on over to our website, which is at iFormerX.org, and sign up today. Membership is free to health professionals and those training to become a health professional. In today's episode, we're going to talk about one of the most commonly used classes of medications and their potential link to the development of dementia. Proton pump inhibitors, or PPIs, are widely used by patients for all sorts of GI complaints and to prevent gastric erosions. Not only are they commonly prescribed, but since they're also available over-the-counter, Many patients purchase them to use with little or no input from health professionals about the potential risks and benefits. Short-term use of PPIs is quite safe, so I don't think a one- or two-week course of therapy would lead to many serious long-term consequences. But long-term use is another matter, and it's not uncommon for patients to use PPIs for months and months or even years and years. For example, my mother was at high risk for gastric ulcers due to chronic NSAID use, and she was prescribed a PPI to prevent GI bleeds. So she took a PPI for more than a decade. She eventually developed dementia in her early 80s. And and certainly dementia is not uncommon as we age, but I've always wondered if perhaps some of her medications were contributing factors. So that's why a recently published article in the journal Neurology caught my eye. The paper suggested that long-term PPI use is indeed associated with an increased risk of developing dementia. But let's take a closer look at that paper. So I've invited our guests today to write a commentary about it and provide us with a critical appraisal of the merits of the study findings. Dr. Molly Corder is Assistant Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Butler University, and she's an ambulatory care pharmacy specialist with Community Health Network at their Speedway Pavilion in Speedway, Indiana, which I assume is near the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Molly is also a PhD student at the moment, so she's one busy lady. And her co-author, Ryan Aids, is on faculty just a few miles north in West Lafayette, Indiana, at Purdue University, where he serves as the Experiential Learning Curriculum Coordinator, which is more than a full-time job, so Ryan is a super busy person, too. Molly and Ryan, I'm delighted to welcome you both as first-time contributors to iFormerX. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. And you are correct. I am right down the street from the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. I can literally hear it down the road when it's May. So Molly, let's start with you. Let's talk about dementia. Heart disease and cancer are currently the leading causes of death in most developed countries like the United States. But it's anticipated that advanced dementia will become a leading cause of death, or in many cases, a contributing cause of death in the next 20 to 30 years. 
as our population ages, dementia will become a major public health problem and the leading cause of disability. Now, age appears to be the strongest risk factor to developing dementia. Aging isn't modifiable, so we can't do anything to reverse aging, but there are a number of modifiable risk factors that we can do something about. So that's my question. What can we do? How can we reduce the risk of developing dementia as we grow old? You're correct. Age is the most significant non-modifiable risk factor for dementia. As we grow older, the risk of developing dementia increases. It's a natural part of aging, unfortunately. Another non-modifiable factor is our genetic makeup. So family history can play a role in determining dementia risk. Certain genetic factors may predispose individuals to conditions like Alzheimer's. And while we can't alter our genetics, we can be aware of our family history and that can allow us to make some proactive choices. So shifting our focus into some of our more modifiable factors. One of the major modifiable risk factors is cardiovascular health. So conditions like hypertension, diabetes, and high cholesterol can actually contribute to an increased risk of dementia. In fact, it's suggested that about 80% of people with Alzheimer's disease have significant vascular pathology in the brain. So we've all heard of beta amyloid, but I will give a very high-level overview. Beta amyloid is a protein that accumulates in the brain that produces oxidative stress that in turn can cause neurovascular injury, leading to hypoperfusion and neurodegeneration. So adopting a heart-healthy lifestyle through regular exercise, a balanced diet, quality sleep, can really help positively impact our cognitive health, and there is some data to support that. So hypertension, for example, the SPRINT trial or the systolic blood pressure intervention trial showed that patients who were assigned to the arm with a lower systolic blood pressure of less than 120 rather than less than 140 actually had a 19% lower risk for developing mild cognitive impairment, which we know is a precursor to dementia. Similarly, thinking about physical activity, exercise can also play a significant role. So regular exercise not only benefits our cardiovascular system, but has also been linked to reduce cognitive decline. So a 2017 review summarized findings from human and animal studies showing a positive link between physical exercise and brain health. Exercise was actually associated with increased neuro-repair, a reduction in inflammation, decrease in beta amyloid plaque, and overall less oxidative stress. Another modifiable risk factor is our diet. So research suggests that a diet rich in fruits, veggies, omega-3 fatty acids, similar to our Mediterranean diet, may have protective effects against dementia. So making mindful choices in what we eat can also be beneficial to help reduce our risk. There's also a lot of data to support that smoking will put a patient at an increased risk of dementia and cognitive decline. But if the patient is able to quit, we can decrease those risks, similarly to even if they had never picked up a cigarette. The data for alcohol use is less straightforward, but it is it is suggested that heavy alcohol use is associated with increased risks of cognitive decline and dementia. So if you are going to drink, drink in moderation. And now transitioning lastly to some of our more social aspects of it, cognitive engagement is yet another modifiable risk factor. So keeping our brains active and engaged through activities like reading, puzzles, learning new skills can contribute to cognitive reserve acting as a buffer against cognitive decline. 
Social connections also fall into modifiable category. So maintaining a robust social life and staying socially active can have a protective effect on cognitive health. As humans, we are social beings and these connections play a vital role in our overall well-being. And then, of course, what we're here for today, certain medications are also suggested to increase the risk of dementia, such as anticholinergics, hypnotics, and potentially our PPIs, too. So, Ryan, let's take a look at the study you critically reviewed in your iFormerx commentary. The study was published, as I mentioned earlier, in the journal Neurology in October of 2023, and its official title is Cumulative Dose of Proton Pump Inhibitors and Risk of Dementia, the Atherosclerosis Risk in Communities Study. And I hope everyone will read the original paper, and we've posted a link to the original paper on our website. But Ryan, can you give us a synopsis of the study methods and some of the key findings? Yeah, this study was started as a longitudinal population-based cohort study. And originally, it was evaluating atherosclerosis risk in about 16,000 patients that were aged 45 to 64 years old when the study started in the late 80s, 1980s for our younger uh, listeners. Uh, it has since been utilized to evaluate other disease states, and the authors in this study utilized the data collected through medication histories over about a 15-year period to evaluate a link between PPI use and the incidence of dementia. About 6,000 of the original 16,000 patients were still active and included in the study analysis. The authors wanted to evaluate a possible link between current exposure to PPIs defined as use during a visit in the early 2010s and dementia. But the thing that we're here to talk about more so is the possible link between cumulative exposure to PPIs and dementia. The cumulative exposure to PPIs was evaluated through annual medication histories that were conducted with the participants. Participants who had never taken PPIs were utilized as a reference group, whereas anyone who had taken PPIs were stratified into one of three equivalent groups. The first group was from one day of use to about 2.8 years, second group from 2.8 to 4.4 years, and the third group, anybody who'd taken a PPI for greater than 4.4 years. URA, so the H2 histamine receptor antagonists, were also evaluated as an active comparator to PPI use. The results of the study, the main takeaways, showed that there was really not a link between current PPI use and the incidence of dementia as compared to the reference group. So there was no link between just that one point in time and PPI use and dementia. With the cumulative use of PPIs, it was associated with a statistically significant increase in dementia incidence compared to the reference group, but only for those patients using PPIs for greater than 4.4 years. Uh, so that was really the, the hallmark takeaway. This works out to be about one additional dementia diagnosis for every 204 patient years. So that's kind of our number needed to harm in this scenario. There was no difference noted in dementia incidence H2RA use with any of the current or cumulative doses. So for the active comparator, they found no difference. So those were kind of the main takeaway points uh, that we summarized in our synopsis of this study. So Ryan, this study is retrospective. It's a cohort study, and thus we can't claim there's a cause and effect relationship between PPI use and the risk of dementia. However, some cohort studies are better than others and because they account for potential factors that might contribute to the outcome of interest. In this case, the outcome of interest is a diagnosis of dementia. 
So what do you think? What factors have the authors accounted for in their analysis, factors other than the duration of PPI use that might have contributed to the development of dementia? Is the association between PPI use and dementia even biologically plausible? Or is this just an interesting but potentially spurious association? That's a great and multifaceted question, Stuart. So I'm going to try to break it down as best as I can. So the authors did their best to account for a number of the confounding factors that could impact dementia incidents. So they used Cox proportional hazard models, which were utilized to account for differences in age, sex, race, education, uh, APOE4 genotype, which is a genotype that genetically predisposes patients to an increased risk for dementia. Those were all accounted for in the modeling. There were additional models developed as well to account for BMI, as well as the H2RA or aspirin use, diabetes, stroke, and hypertension. So they did account for some of those other disease states that Molly referred to could be linked with increased incidences of dementia. In all three of the models that the authors utilized, the same significant difference was found for prolonged cumulative PPI use. So for all of the models, it was noted to be statistically significantly increased risk Getting to a second part of your question, there there have been some studies evaluating the link between PPIs and dementia, which point to a couple potential mechanisms for this association. So one of the links that we noted was an association between PPI use and low serum vitamin B12 levels in patients. This was a weakness of this study because vitamin B12 was not a point of data that was included in our study group. So it was really difficult to determine whether this association held true in this specific group. But lower acid levels in the GI tract can lead to decreased absorption of vitamin B12. That has been associated with a decline in cognition in some other studies that have been done previously. Another potential pathway points to that association between PPI use and increased beta amyloid levels in the brain, which Molly uh, touched on. These can contribute to the development of Alzheimer's disease. There are a few other postulated mechanisms linking PPI use and dementia, but those are probably the two most compelling, and those are the two we have the most data on. Moving back to the thoughts on this study, it does have a number of strengths. The patient population was much more diverse than many of the previous studies done evaluating this association, and patients were followed over a prolonged period of time, which is really important if we're looking at the delayed onset and diagnosis of dementia. We need that long time to see whether or not that association holds true. This also was one of the only studies that looked at cumulative PPI use and did so in a robust fashion. There are a couple others that have been done previously that did not find a link, but they may have been underpowered. And the other, I think one of the other key strengths of this study was that the dementia incidence was really thoroughly and appropriately evaluated by medical experts, and it was really clearly outlined in the article. So a number of strengths with this study. There were definitely some limitations to note as well, and I think the most notable is the uncertainty of the true PPI use with these patients. As you noted, PPIs became available over-the-counter in 2003, and so patients could use these without the guidance of a medical professional. However, the medication histories did not include over-the-counter PPI use unless it was prescribed by a physician. This could grossly underestimate the true PPI use in the patient population, In contrast to that, last observation carried forward methodology was used for any missing data points if they missed a medication history for one year, for example, but they were using PPIs the previous year, they would have assumed continued use of PPIs. So that could provide additional inaccuracies with the amount of PPIs that were used. 
One other key limitation of this study that I wanted to note was that it did not account for some indications that might warrant prolonged acid suppression therapy. So, for example, Zollinger, Ellison syndrome, Barrett's esophagus, eosinophilic esophagitis, those are all things that are pretty well documented as appropriate indications for long-term PPI use. The, the last thing is if we have those indications for prolonged acid suppression, we don't really have any clarity as to what to use. So definitely some limitations, but I think it adds to the overall understanding of the problem. Well, I think prolonged PPI use is problematic for several reasons, notwithstanding the risk of dementia. I think we need to have additional research to really understand this link between dementia and PPI use or prolonged PPI use. But there's no doubt that long-term PPI use is associated with other adverse health consequences. So, Molly, what are these other long-term effects that we should be on the lookout for? And more importantly, how can we limit PPI use so that people aren't taking it for years and years in many cases without a clear indication? As Ryan alluded to, our prolonged PPI use has been linked to issues like malabsorption and nutrient deficiencies, particularly magnesium, calcium, and vitamin B12. These deficiencies can have far-reaching consequences affecting bone health, for example, potentially putting a patient at an increased risk for osteoporosis. Data here is a little controversial, I will say. Another concern is the potential increased risk of infections, particularly in the GI tract. So PPIs reduce stomach acid, which is a crucial component of our immune system. The reduction in acidity may create an environment conducive to bacterial overgrowth. There's been data suggesting increased risk of Clostridium difficile and um, community-acquired pneumonia. Now, the important question is how can we monitor and mitigate these potential long-term effects? So, of course, following up and having essential screenings for individuals on prolonged PPI therapy. As healthcare providers, we should consider monitoring nutrient levels through lab tests, especially magnesium and vitamin B12. The FDA drug safety communication does recommend monitoring of serum magnesium levels. There is some controversial data on monitoring vitamin B12, but that is a reasonable consideration. And the data is a little bit weaker in terms of monitoring calcium or bone density. So that might be a little bit more patient specific. But other than monitoring, we really do have a duty to ensure that they're being used appropriately in the first place. So as we know, a patient with occasional heartburn likely does not need years and years of PPI therapy. Additionally, discussing the ongoing need for PPIs is crucial. So it's important to reassess the necessity of continued use, especially if the initial indication for PPI therapy has resolved. I can't tell you how many times I've had a patient come in, I'm doing a med rec, and they have no idea why they're on omeprazole and they've been on it for the past 10, 20 years. Sometimes we might have to gradually taper a patient off the medication to prevent rebound heartburn, or sometimes we'll have to explore alternative treatments that address the underlying issues without the need for long-term PPIs. But while the potential link between PPIs and dementia requires further research, it's clear there are problems associated with prolonged PPI use. So we should do regular monitoring and make sure we are being advocates. Well, Ryan, Molly, thanks for agreeing to write this commentary and being a guest on the iPhone Rex podcast today. I don't think we have sufficient evidence yet to prove that PPIs cause or contribute to the development of dementia, but I think we can all agree that long-term PPI use is all too common 
but often overlooked, and in many cases, the risks outweigh the potential benefits. So I think this is a terrific opportunity for pharmacists and should be one of the targeted classes of medications in our de-prescribing efforts. Tell us about what you're doing in your practice to limit PPI use. Just head on over to iformerx.org, sign in, and leave a comment. Only members of iFormerX can leave comments and use the interactive features, so sign up today and become a member. And for those of you who are board-certified geriatric pharmacists, I've got good news. You can earn board recertification and continuing education credit for listening to this podcast and reading the written commentary. The American Pharmacists Association has partnered with iFormerX to create the evidence-based podcast and literature evaluation series which is part of their board prep and recertification program. And you more about that program by clicking on the link posted below the written commentary on our website. And lastly, I want to extend my thanks to Melissa Palmer, who is a clinical pharmacy specialist at the Anchorage VA Medical Center in Alaska. Melissa is a psychiatric pharmacist who specializes in treating patients with substance use and alcohol use disorders. Melissa has been a frequent contributor to iFormerX over the past five years, having written commentaries, contributed to podcasts, and, and she's been a peer reviewer too. And she helps to maintain our Substance Use Disorders resource page, which provides links to the latest evidence, guidelines, and resources to help the busy clinician. So thank you, Melissa, for being a strong advocate, a safe haven, and providing hope to people who feel trapped by addiction. Well, until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, Editor-in-Chief of iFormerX, signing off.